Now, I've been doing some research uh, <clears throat> last wee while, and you might be aware that actually in the last 30 years, there's been a big, <clears throat> a big upswing in studies on happiness. And scientists, particularly psychologists, uh, have been really trying to figure out what makes us happy? Why are we happy and, and how do we be happy? And so this is really important, uh, particularly with, well, I suppose we'd all agree that our mental health and our well-being is important, not just for ourselves, but for wider society. So there's been a lot of scientific tests and surveys done, and, and they take into account all these different factors, like environmental factors, uh, emotional factors, biological factors, and behavioural factors. And so some of these some of these happiness tests are actually online. You can jump on the internet and uh, take uh, these tests. You have to answer a lot of questions and you have to rate your responses and then at the end, the test tells you how happy you are. So I've done that and um, I found out how happy I was. But what I didn't realise was then they charge you another $5 to get the full results and that made me not very happy. Um, <laughs> But what I thought I'd do this morning is just do a very simple happiness test on you. Okay? I'm not going to charge you $5 at the end, you know, sting you with a little bit of... But I, what I am going to do is very, very simple. This is like a... This is, this is my version of it. Okay? I'm going to show you some images on the screen. And all you have to do is, if those images make you happy, thumbs up. And if they, do, if they make you not happy, thumbs down. Okay, have you got it? All right, this is a quick test. You got it? Okay, who, who doesn't have it? Okay, all right. That's going to possibly not be that scientific. All right, here we go. So, first image. If this image up here makes you happy, it's... Oh, that's not it. Right. That was the previous one. This is it, right? Now, this is it. Does this image make you happy? Okay. Child, mother, laughing. Okay, what about this image? Oh, sound effects. Impressive. Okay, what about this one? Yeah. See, not only is it a happy birthday, but it's also a very delicious looking cake. What about this one? <laughs> Mixed results here. Okay, interesting. All right, what about this one? Oh, I knew that one would get a... Ooh. What about this one? Ooh, ooh, interesting, interesting. Okay. Ah, oh, flip, Okay. What about this one, early morning run? Yeah, I thought, I thought so. This one. Okay, this, I'm not sure how this one's going to go. Yeah. Okay, I did know how that one was going to go. Uh, this last, two more. And the final, final picture, does this picture make you happy? Ah. All right, how happy do you feel now? Let's look at the scale. Wow. Anybody off the charts in terms of happiness? Okay, I'm, I'm very pleased uh, that that science experiment as loose as it was actually worked. Now, there's something a little bit more scientific than this. So in the last decade, a bunch of scientists have published the World Happiness Report. Now, this is a genuine, legitimate thing. So what they do is they survey 156 countries in the world and they rank those countries based on how happy the people say they are. So the last couple of years have been pretty tough for a lot of people around the world. But nevertheless, 
uh, people have still rated themselves in this World Happiness Report. So I'm going to show you the results for 2021, the year that we've almost completed. This is where New Zealand sits in the World Happiness Report for this year. We sit at position 9. So out of 156 countries, New Zealand has rated ourselves, and I don't know if any of you participated in the survey, but we've rated ourselves at ninth. It's pretty good, okay? A few European countries in the top there. Um, last year, this is where New Zealand was. Same position, okay? 2020, New Zealand was ninth. Uh, uh, there was a little bit of movement, but not much. And I think that's, you know, because... New Zealanders were able to get through these tough times. So, if I roll back to the first year when the World Happiness Report was published, which is the year 2012, just out of interest, where do you think New Zealand might be? Born. Eight. Anybody else got an advance on eight? Jenkins? Third, Whew. That's, that's up there, that's pretty happy, okay. All right, oh, you guys are very confident. I mean, we could have dropped, you know. Anyway, this is the result. Warren has been looking at my PowerPoint beforehand. So we were eight. In 2012, New Zealand rated ourselves uh, as the eighth country happiest overall. Now, there's been some interesting, like significant changes and challenges in our country in the last nine years, and, and it's possibly affected our happiness a tiny bit, but not much. We're still ahead of Australia, so yay, woohoo, that's exciting. <clears throat> but I thought you've got to realise, put it in perspective, we're in the top ten of apparently the happiest countries in the world. 156 countries are on the survey. So my question for you is, why do you think New Zealanders are apparently so happy? I'm going to invite you to discuss that with someone you're sitting beside for 30 seconds, why do you think New Zealanders are so happy? Okay, any thoughts on why New Zealanders are so happy? I'm going to ask people with small hands first. Lucy, why do you think New Zealanders are happy? That is a great answer because if you didn't hear it, because New Zealanders believe in God and they help people. Is that right? That's what you said? Good catch. Archie, have you got something else to say? We do live in a beautiful country. Good job. All right. Oh, you'll have to... Yeah. Oh, Shiloh, next. Hmm, good point. We don't have too many fights with other countries because they've got bigger guns than us normally. Yes. No Taliban. 
No telly band. Good catch, Murray. So what? They feel safe. Yep, that's an interesting point. Right. Uh, this is going to be big. Sorry, too big. Jordan. So basically everything that everybody else has said before you. <laughs> Summing it up. Timmy. Our national motto is she'll be right. I thought you were going to say our national anthem and then sing it for us, but um, no, that's fine. Okay, right, cool. Cool, cool. Okay, so seems like you kind of hit it on the head. Some of the things that I had, you know, we're pretty down to earth. We're pretty grounded people. You know, we live in a great place, outdoors, works sort of sometimes okay. We have a simple simple enjoyment of the, of the simple things in life. I, I, I would say that New Zealanders are relatively content with where we're at and what we've got in, in general. Okay, Obviously there's a massive generalisation, but a lot of people around, particularly the Western world, seem to make the pursuit of happiness a really important goal in their life. And then when they don't achieve happiness to the degree that they think they should, they often end up disillusioned and disappointed. So you might have heard of this guy, uh, Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian psychologist and a professor, and he's written a few prominent books in the last few years and uh, around life and meaning. And in an interview a couple of years ago, he said this, if happiness is the purpose of life, what happens when you're unhappy? Happiness is fleeting and unpredictable. If happiness is your goal in life and you are unhappy then you're a failure. Happiness is like cotton candy. It's just not going to do the job. Now, I think all of us have probably lived long enough to discover that happiness is fleeting. It is really you know, one of those feelings that one day you're feeling happy, the next you're feeling unhappy. And it's very temperamental, I suppose. But sometimes we seek happiness in our stuff, whether it's our house, our car, our boat, our bike or whatever. But those are objects and they wear out or they break and then we become unhappy. Sometimes we try and seek happiness or, or satisfaction in our work and maybe it's going great but then you get an email advising of restructures and redundancies and that kind of makes you unhappy. Or maybe we seek happiness in our friends and our family and that can be really great too but then we can also be let down or betrayed or we grieve the loss of a loved one. And so with the changes and the challenges of life we need something bigger than happiness. We need something deeper, something broader, something that ha- can handle the highs and the lows of the human existence. C.S. Lewis was an author and apologist, and he put it like this. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Now, 2000, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have known that joy is deeper than happiness. And from a biblical perspective, joy is really finding the goodness in our lives, not from our circumstances, not from our possessions, not from our achievements, but from our relationship with God. So we're just going to watch a quick video clip about some people describing joy, and then we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that. Thanks, Grant.
Joy is an entire packet of Snickers pods. Joy is eating my grandma's tabbouleh on Sunday. When that first sip of coffee touches your soul in the morning. Joy is getting the time to do some scrapbooking. When I'm video editing and everything comes together perfectly. Catching an intercept and running 100 metres down the field to score that winning try in a game. Reaching that perfect level of crispiness when I'm cooking bacon. Joy is dancing the night away. Joy is the sound of a solid high five. Joy is feeling beautiful when I wear my mom's hand-me-downs. Joy is mowing the lawn on a Saturday afternoon and it just looking mint. Joy is having a really good laugh with friends. Joy is getting a haircut with the first state. No, don't use that oh, one. Please don't use that one. Don't use that one. It's definitely different than happiness. Joy is something deeper. There's a difference between something that grabs your attention and there's something that holds your heart. Joy is knowing God loves me, despite the ups and downs. Joy is being blessed with friends that share the faith. Joy is a gift from the Holy Spirit which each Christian has. Joy is more than happiness. It's, it's deeper than happiness. It's the peace that comes with knowing that life at its core is good. You can be joyful even when everything around you is telling you not to be. Following Jesus gives me joy. It's not always easy. Joy is witnessing how Christ and the Holy Spirit can make anyone feel it. Jesus came that we might have life to the full. Joy is more than just a feeling. It's a way of living, knowing that we're loved by God. There's some pretty good, uh, pretty good descriptions of joy in that. And you would have heard those young people say that joy is deeper than happiness. So unlike Happiness, joy is consistent and continuous. And joy comes from God's grace and his truth and that being the foundation of our lives, living in the knowledge that God loves us. But I think, unfortunately, joy is in short supply in our world. So the changes and the challenges in our country and even in our world have been pretty tough on the last couple of years. And there's a lot of people who are physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually Worn out. In fact, in New Zealand, arguably we're living in perhaps the most divisive times that we have for several decades. And that's why I think it's especially important to celebrate joy at Christmas. Because Christmas is a reminder that joy is not from presents or parties or food or holidays, but that Christmas comes from someone, uh, from joy comes from someone else. In fact, at Christmas, joy was born. 2,000 years ago, a baby was born that personified joy. Now, you probably know that babies bring joy, right? And babies bring joy because they are cute, aren't they? <laughs> oh, that's the wrong photo. That baby's about to knock your lights out, not the cute baby. Babies bring joy because they're cute, especially when they're asleep, I find. When they're awake, they're ready to cause mischief. And if you've ever had a baby, a new baby in your house, you know that for everyone living under that same roof, it's not always a joyful experience. Like the new life that a baby is is phenomenal and mind-blowing and miraculous and, and ultimately full of joy. But living with a new baby, it's very easy to forget that there is a lack of sleep, there is difficulties feeding, there is dirty nappies, and the disruption to normality is just so massive, it's not always a joyful time. But, despite the lack of sleep and the dirty nappies, it seems that everyone at the first Christmas experienced joy. 
Let me show you. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was visited by an angel and she was told that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. And this is how she responded. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl and from now on all generations will call me blessed. All the shepherds, they were pretty uh, prominent in the Christmas story. They were the first non-family members to hear about the birth. And so once they'd been to see Jesus, they went and told everybody the good news. They were pumped. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. All the wise men, the, the magi from distant lands, they were filled with joy. They interpreted the signs in the night sky. They followed the star that led them to Jesus. And when they saw the star... They were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now Mary, the shepherds, the magi, they're all familiar characters in the Christmas story. So this morning I just very want to briefly highlight the experience of some people on the edge of the Christmas story. Now they're not on the Christmas cards, they're not in the Christmas carols that we sing, but just because they're on the fringes doesn't mean they didn't have an important part to play. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to read the story in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to focus on a couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is what happened to them. There was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, I'll just pause because this couple was a special couple. Now, sadly, in that culture at the time, it was dishonorable for a woman to not be able to have children. But despite years of trying to conceive, it seems that Zechariah and Elizabeth were still faithful. They still trusted God and they were, they were faithful in their service to God. So, next, next uh, section, Luke chapter 1, verse 8. One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Now, it's very easy for us to read that and kind of miss the intensity of that moment, but Zechariah was talking to an angel. And how about you, but if I was talking to an angel, I would be freaking out. And uh, it seems that Zechariah was overwhelmed, but Nevertheless, he's been given some good news by the angel that his wife is going to become pregnant and, he, and he's going, she's going to give birth to a son. And so this is going to bring great joy, obviously, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But actually, you'll see there in verse 14, many will rejoice at this baby's birth. In fact, God has special plans for this child. He's going to, this, this son is going to prepare people's hearts and minds for the coming of Jesus. And this is going to impact not just the Israelite nation, but hugely influence the wider world. Now what's fascinating is that this is a fulfillment of an ancient promise God had given to a Jewish prophet 700 years earlier. This is what Isaiah recorded in chapter 40. Listen, 
It's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. So centuries before, God had promised to send a, to send a forerunner, someone who would be the warm-up act, someone who would announce, who would signal that God's Saviour was coming and that God's Saviour was going to sort out the mess of the world and save us from our sin and suffering. And then this angel turns up and tells Zechariah that his son is going to be this promised person. He's going to be the warm-up act for the main event. I mean, this is a big, big deal. This is 700 years of expectation riding on Zechariah's shoulders. Talk about no pressure, right? Anyway, this is what happens next. When Zechariah's service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. So there was much joy, much, much rejoicing, not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth, for, but for their family, for their friends. They celebrated the birth of this baby. And then eight days later, according to the record, they named him John. And baby John grew up to be Man John. I know that's not very surprising to you, but that's what happened. And Man John had a reputation as being pretty wild. So he lived in the wilderness. His clothes were made from camel skins, which would have been really itchy. And he lived on a diet of locusts and wild honey which is great for the protein and the carbs, but probably not all that balanced. Anyway, if you put that aside, John fulfilled what God had called him to do. He brought joy to many people. He encouraged people to repent from their sin and to start afresh in the grace and the goodness of God. In fact, according to the historical record, John helped hundreds, maybe even thousands of people from all over the country as the crowds gathered to hear him. He would point them to Jesus. He said that Jesus is the light and the life for all the world. In fact, this is how one of the first Christians described it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John's message was simply, Jesus is coming. And Jesus is going to bring light and he's going to bring life and he's going to bring meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction and hope and love and peace and joy and grace and truth. And actually the miracle of John's birth testified to a greater miracle that in the person and work of Jesus, God drew near. He stepped out of eternity and he entered our humanity. He took on human skin and dwelt among us. Now that's mind-blowing, right? But the question is, why would God do that? Why would he reach out and, and reconnect with his wayward planet? God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. 
See, Jesus' mission was not to seek and destroy. It was to save and deliver, to help and to heal. And to do that, he willingly sacrificed his life on the cross. He paid the price for the sins of the world so that anyone who believes and trusts in him will be forgiven and set free. And it's really tough. Like This, this brutal death on a cross is a long way from the miracle of his birth. But thankfully that's not the end of the story. To, to, to prove that Jesus was the Son of God, that he wasn't a martyr or a tragic hero, to prove that he had power over death, Jesus came back to life, leaving behind an empty grave, an empowered group of followers. And those first followers realized what Jesus had done for them. This is what they wrote. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. You see, because of Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, the first followers saw his light. They had hope. They experienced his grace, and they lived in his joy. And I think 2,000 years later, we still need that. New Zealand might be the ninth happiest country in the world right now, but there's a lot of hurt and heartache in people's lives. This Christmas might be your first without a loved one at the table. This Christmas, you might be reeling from a relationship breakdown or betrayal by a friend. This Christmas, there might be uncertainties hanging over your job. You might be suffering from sickness or some mental illness. But in the midst of all of that, Jesus makes a difference. He doesn't offer us fleeting happiness. He gives us deep joy in the midst of our sorrows. Because Jesus brings joy, and he brings joy because circumstances from our circumstances in life don't have to be seen from an earthly perspective, but from his eternal perspective. And I think that's what we need this Christmas. We need that. We need more joy. And the people around us need the joy that Jesus brings. You might be familiar or unfamiliar with this man, Franz Joseph Hayden. He was an Austrian composer in the 18th century. And for much of his career, he was the most celebrated composer in all of Europe. He was a friend and a mentor to Mozart. He was a tutor to Beethoven. In fact, Hayden's contribution to musical composition was so significant that he is known as the father of the symphony. That is how prominent he is. And on one occasion he was asked why his music is so cheerful, and this is what he said. I cannot make my music sound otherwise. I write according to the thoughts I feel. When I think of God, my heart is full of joy, so full of joy that the notes dance and leap, as it were, from my pen. Since God has given me a joyful heart, I will, uh, since God has given me a joyful heart, I will serve Him with a joyful spirit. Now you might think, well, easy for you to say that, Hayden. Your life was easy. You're a composer. But the circumstances of his life were actually very, very difficult. His, the family that he grew up in was very poor, so, so poor that he was sent to live with a distant relative when he was six years old, and he never lived with his parents ever again. As a child and then as a teenager, 
of the people he lived with, Hayden was underfed, he was humiliated, he was abused and he was beaten. Eventually he was kicked out onto the streets of Vienna where he had to make it as a busker and then uh, a music teacher. After a time his ability was noticed and, uh, by the aristocratic nobility and he eventually became a musician and then a tutor and then a composer for various wealthy families. But despite all that success, throughout much of his life he had difficult health and, and the, his last years were very debilitating. But even in the midst of all of that, he could still say that he was joyful. Since God has given me a joyful heart, I will serve him with a joyful spirit. And so this Christmas, may you find joy in Jesus, like Hayden, like John, like Zechariah, like Elizabeth, like Mary, like Joseph, like the wise men, like the shepherds. May you discover the joy that Jesus offers. His truth can anchor your life. And the changing and the challenging and the complicated times that we live in, your joy can be grounded in the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And so when you discover that joy, may you share that joy. I don't know about you, but I think that if there's any group of people on the planet that should be full of joy, it should be Christians, right? Right. I'm hearing you. Woo, yeah. Okay, I'm glad we've established that fact. Any group of people that should be full of joy as the, as Christians, and, and if there's any time when people are most open to having more joy in their life, it's Christmas. So can you see the connection? Christmas is a great time to share joy. So this Christmas, may you make it your mission to share joy. Maybe it's baking a cake for the neighbours. Maybe it's putting a nativity scene in your business or in your window or something. Maybe it's making that phone call that you've been meaning to make for ages or sending that card. Maybe it's writing to an overseas missionary or sponsoring a child or visiting the elderly or helping someone riff, uh, wrap up their gifts or just having someone for a meal at your house. Look for the opportunities that God gives you to live and love like Jesus. So friends, this Christmas, may you experience the joy in Jesus and may you share that joy that is found in Jesus. Let's pray. God, uh, we live in changing and sometimes confusing times. And our lives are kind of up and down. But we're grateful that Jesus brings joy consistently and continuously to us. We're grateful too that joy is deeper than happiness. And we just